Good morning. I'm Jay Moran, and today on Buffalo What's Next, the focus will be on education with three different guests. We'll hear from Ann Ryan of Read to Succeed of Buffalo. She'll offer a look at some of the stark realities of how many children are falling behind in reading skills and what that could mean for their lives. And she'll also share some successful solutions. We'll introduce you to Vicki Math. She was among the guest presenters at the recent Teaching Black History Conference presented by the University of Buffalo. Her focus is on how art can serve as a guide to understanding black history. But first, we chat with Eva Doyle, a retired school teacher. She continues to educate about black history. In fact, many of her lessons and stories revolve around Buffalo's black history. She was able to meet me at the conference room inside the Merriweather Library on Jefferson Avenue. The room sits adjacent to the library's Eva M. Doyle Auditorium. We talked for far too long to bring you the entire conversation, but here are some of the portions of our talk from the Merriweather Library. I would say the Frank E. Merriweather Jr. Library, named after the distinguished Merriweather family who own and publish the Criterion newspaper, the oldest black newspaper in western New York. It is 97 years old. And we should mention, of course, for over, what, 40 years, you have been a columnist for that. Um, actually, it's, um, it, it will be, I'm going to make the correction, it will be 44 years old in February okay. because it started in 1979 in the Buffalo Challenger, which is the other black, we have two black newspapers, right. which is uh, the Challenger is probably close to 70 years old. But I started writing it in the Challenger, and the publisher and owner is Alnisa Banks. I want to make sure I give her credit. And when I started, actually, I sort of fell into it by accident. Uh, I was teaching school, and um, I just stopped by the Challenger's office, uh, which at that time was on Fillmore, and I just wanted to write one or two articles about Dr. King, <laughs> because it was around his birthday. And then when I saw uh, Miss Banks later, she said, um, why don't you write another article? So I wrote a couple more. The response was great. That was almost 44 years ago and more than 4,000 articles ago. That's, I've actually um, I've written more than 4,000 articles. I, if someone had said to me then in 1979, that I was still writing this column today, I would not have believed it. At one point, Eva Doyle considered stopping her weekly columns, but it was her late husband who encouraged her to continue writing and telling those stories. She has, and in so doing, has become an important voice in Buffalo. So influential, in fact, when Topps was preparing its ceremonial reopening of their Jefferson Avenue store for the first time, since the May 14th attack that left 10 black people dead and three others wounded, they sought out Eva Doyle. And I want to tell you, when I got the call from the top PR person, I hesitated about going. I really did. I didn't know whether I wanted to go. And I, my, I talked to my youngest son, and then he says, I don't think you should go. That's what he said. So, the, so I thought about it, and then I said to myself, that evening, I said, you know what, I have to go. 
I have to go because of the fact I happen to be um, a journalist. I happen to write a weekly column. And if I'm going to tell the story, I can't rely, rely on the comments of other people and what I hear on the news and see on television. I have to be there to see for myself as a journalist, as an, as an, an integral part of the black community. And the other reason I wanted to go, this domestic terrorist, this white supremacist, targeted the black community to kill as many blacks as he could. And I, deep down inside, I said, I don't want him to get away with that, and I don't want him to think that he is one. Eva Doyle accepted the invitation. She was impressed by some of the ceremonies and the waterfall memorial located inside the store but wants a larger remembrance outside, a memorial that can outlast Buffalo's wild weather so victims won't be forgotten. These innocent citizens were the best of us. They were the best of this community. They were the best of the city of Buffalo. Each one of them had done things to make positive contributions. When you looked at the story of Deacon Hayward Patterson, and how he would use his truck to help the elderly with their groceries and give them a ride home. And a matter of fact, while he, he was shot while he was sitting in his truck, um, Pearl Young, she worked for the Buffalo schools. She was an educator. And I know uh, one of the teachers that worked at the school, and she said when that happened, it, it really... Um, impacted the students and they put up a memorial for her uh, with the sayings and remembering her. Catherine Massey, she was a journalist, she was a, a, a writer, she was a person who really uh, campaigned against illegal drug trafficking in the black community. She was very outspoken about that. I remember the last time I saw her, which is actually a couple years ago, they had a big demonstration uh, at a park not far from here, and uh, a lot of officials came, the community came, and she was there, and the whole thing was, um, we need to get rid of illegal guns, and it was organized by the late Neil Dobbins, who spoke out all time about it. She not only stopped talked about the violence and the illegal guns, but she also spoke often at the Buffalo Board of Education, advocating for the best education for our children. So she was very well known. She was very active in her community in the Fruit Belt in the area around Cherry Street. As a matter of fact, um, uh, I did go to her funeral. There was a lot of people there. And uh, someone referred to her as the mayor of Cherry Street. Um, as a matter of fact, Dr. Ben Chavis, a well-known civil rights leader and journalist himself, himself, spoke at her funeral and gave her tributes. Eva shared a troubling discovery, that the May 14th attacker had other east side targets in mind for that day, including the street where she resides. Despite that, 
She says she's found comfort in other developments. It brought a lot of people to the black community from other communities, from the suburban communities, from other cities, as a matter of fact, who came down to help uh, and to uh, meet people, interact with the, some may, 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 might not have had an opportunity to, to really interact and talk to African Americans. I had a student teacher one time. I, I taught at the campus school, uh, used to be the college learning lab on Buff State, and I helped to train a lot of college students. And I never will forget my f first student teacher. She was from the suburbs, young white student. And she told me something. She said, you know what, Miss Doyle, you are the first African-American adult I have ever really spoken to. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure that that's true of, of a lot of people. They just have not. And uh, so I think people got, got to know the community and they extended a helping hand. Um, people just kept coming. And I think that, uh, I think that to me, that, that was a good thing. With her column in the Criterion, Eva Doyle has been a thoughtful observer to what's happening in parts of the city that are often overlooked and underreported. Her standing as a journalist and historian provides a perspective to the community mindset. One of the things is when we had our Juneteenth, uh, our annual Juneteenth festival, which, which you know now is a national holiday, um, um, people really came out and it was a very positive it was, uh, people were unified, it was peaceful, um, um, and, but um, we, even though we were celebrating Juneteenth, which is a, a freedom celebration, no one wanted to forget what happened. No one wanted to forget uh, the victims and the people who were, who were slaughtered. And, I got a good eye view, but I had never been in a, a parade before. And I, I ended up uh, on this float, and, 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 and um, the Buffalo Urban League, um, the uh, executive director, invited me and um, Dr. Barbara Nevergold to be on their float. And that was a complete surprise. And the one thing I could see, when you're on a parade, you tend to see everything. And every corner, as we were coming down Genesee, every corner we went, and the people, just masses of people, masses of people. And it seemed like it was increasing more and more the closer we got to the park. And everybody just seemed to be so good, glad to be out there because we had been celebrating Juneteenth for 47 consecutive years. This was the 47th year. But two years because of the pandemic, it was urgent. That's what I noticed. And then I saw this truck, and it was like a uh, moving um, billboard, and it was, and then on the side, it had all the names uh, of the people who uh, were, were killed. So nobody forgot. And, and, and uh, I heard uh, someone use this, this word to describe it. It was bittersweet. It was good for us to be together and come together in peace and unity, but at the same time, we still had a touch of bitterness and sadness up because of what happened. On Buffalo What's Next, we're hearing from Eva Doyle, former school teacher, 
She hosted her own radio show in Buffalo for 14 years, and she's been offering her insights into a number of community topics in the aftermath of the May 14th attack on the Jefferson Avenue tops. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. And uh, so I'm hoping that people stay, uh, do things in a peaceful manner. I think that's one of my concerns, that we, whatever, despite the controversies and uh, the demonstrations and the the arguments and uh, people have been very upset um, that it remains peaceful, that we remember that. And, and, and that's one way to pay tribute to the people we lost. To prompt community conversation, Eva Doyle throughout the years has held essay contests using her own dollars as prize money. This summer's subject, if you were to rename Jefferson Avenue, what would you call it? Always the historian, she recalls it was previously known as Pollard Street. Unfortunately, the deadline for the contest was last weekend. She's also authored several books, mainly on Buffalo history, and she referenced one that was written for school children. And in the book, I recognize the first black settler to come to, to Buffalo. And, um, and I'll just read the first paragraph. It's just a little bit, for these was, this is for second graders. Let's read about the first black man to come to Buffalo. He came many, many years ago. He was called Black Joe. His real name was Joseph Hodge. He um, owned a fur trading post. He understood and could speak the language of, of the Seneca Nation. Black Joe was one of the first settlers to live in Buffalo. He was a guide and he was an interpreter for the early white settlers. He knew the land better than any other man. And uh, actually he had a log cabin that was uh, very close to the present day site of Canal Side. And I really believe that we should uh, recognize and honor Black Joe because they have, he had the first tavern in the history of Buffalo. <laughs> and, uh, and we have a lot of taverns, folks, so we need to put up a picture or a sign or something and give him credit. That wasn't the only history we discussed. She, like some of us, recall how Joseph Christopher, the so-called 22 caliber killer, terrorized the East Side community four decades ago. Eva Doyle also graciously shared some not-so-pleasant personal history. And I was teaching school in South Buffalo at that time, and that wasn't a very, you know, it wasn't the best place in the world to be teaching as a black person. Because <laughs> I never will forget, every day I came out of the school, it was on Abbott Road, there was a tavern across the street, and every day I came out to go home and get in my car in the, in the parking lot, the white men who were in that tavern used to yell and call me the N-word. Now here, here I'm teaching, probably teaching some of their students. So I had to go through that in South Buffalo. That was uh, That wasn't the first time it was called the N-word. It was a few years ago. Is our times better now? Well, see that happened in the 80s during the time of the 22 caliber killer. But let me just give you another incident. When I um, finished uh, and, and received my, um, I think my master's, I went to Buffalo State College to pick up my graduation uh, cap and gown. 
And I was, I was just elated. I was excited that I had met all the requirements to get the master's degree. And I was walking down Rockwell Road. And I never will forget, it was a beautiful sunny day. And a, a car full of young white males passed me by and hurled out the N-word. And I felt like, you know, you know how a balloon, you, you, you stick a pin in a balloon and it deflates. That's, I felt like that. That they would, they didn't even know me. They didn't know my name. They just saw a black woman walking down the street and I was feeling so good about getting the masters and they called me the N-word. I think all black people have experienced that at one time or another, but you know what? We are a resilient people. A lot has happened to us, going all the way back to our ancestors being enslaved, then going all the way through um, lynchings, segregation, Jim Crow, uh, civil rights, the 60s. We've been knocked down many, many a time. But we have picked ourselves back up again. And we have contributed to this country in all areas. Outstanding people have done so much to help this country grow. Now that she's older, Eva Doyle says she sets aside just two days a week to write and tells her children not to bother her on those days. During our conversation, we had sat for a long time at the Meriwether Library, and she was growing uncomfortable. But she never seemed to tire of making a greater point. We must never forget the reason that this white supremacist, 18 at the time, but he's 19 now, targeted the black community as he goes through the courts and faces 27 federal charges for murder and hate crimes. We must keep our eyes on this and make sure that he receives the fullest punishment possible. While people demonstrate, I would like to urge people to keep this in mind and not let it get lost in all of this controversy. We can't let this domestic terrorist get away with this heinous Dr. Doyle, thanks for your time today. Thank you for inviting me again. (laughs) Author, educator, historian, Dr. Eva M. Doyle. We have more to come. This is Buffalo What's Next. Join Buffalo Toronto Public Media on August 24th at 6 p.m. for a creative and empowering youth-focused event that will help normalize mental health and wellness. Join us at our studios to watch clips of Ken Burns' documentary, Hiding in Plain Sight, Youth Mental Illness. Then participate in mindful discussions, interactive breakout sessions, and informative activities. Free dinner will also be provided. For more information, visit wned.org events. Support for the Mental Health Initiative is sponsored by the Patrick P. Lee Foundation. Watch Remembering Crystal Beach Park. Crystal Beach was such an important part of the lives of anyone growing up in the western New York or southern Ontario area. Relive those childhood memories with the WNED PBS original production, Remembering Crystal Beach Park. Now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. 
This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And on Buffalo What's Next this morning, talking education. It's a topic that's coming up frequently uh, throughout our programs here. Obviously, a key core issue to the city of Buffalo for sure, and for uh, overall, just uh, anybody in society for that matter. And when it comes to education, the core of that, the building block, reading. And with us uh, this morning, Ann Ryan from Read to Succeed Buffalo. Hi, Ann. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Let's, uh, let's talk about that just a little bit, just that, that idea. I'm sure you have the stats at hand. What about that, the idea that if you can't read, what kind of future do you have? Uh, not a very bright one. Um, we know research tells us that if a typical child isn't reading at grade level by the end of third grade, they're much more likely, they're three times more likely not to graduate high school. Okay. We know if a child is economically disadvantaged, is attending a school with a lot of other peers who are economically disadvantaged, like one of our high-poverty schools here in Buffalo, they're 13 times less likely to graduate high school. And we all know if you don't graduate high school, your ability to earn, your ability to contribute, your ability to have civic engagement is considerably diminished. So right there, we're hitting on a, on a key element of what is going on in the city of Buffalo when we talk about poverty, um, we talk about some of our struggling neighborhoods in the city of Buffalo. We're talking about the fact that the education just isn't getting there. Yes. What about that? What What are the reasons then for somebody who may not be at reading level by third grade? Sure. Um, a lot of economically disadvantaged kids and, um, you know, some typical kids, right? Some sure. kids who are in middle or upper income households. They don't have access to high quality literacy rich environments. So they're not they don't have books in the home. They don't have caregivers who are talking to them. Those conversational turns like you and I are doing right now, right? You're looking and engaging and understanding what I'm saying. I'm looking and engaging and understanding what you're asking and having a very rich dialogue. Kids need that from infancy. Kids need to be responded to. They need to have um, those back-and-forth conversational turns. There's research that literally quantifies the number of conversational turns and looks at the IQ of a child at age 12. Interactive language is critically important for brain development and language development. Kids learn, you know, phonemic awareness, conversations, words are made up of sounds, right? You first hear, you first listen. And kids can understand a much higher level of vocabulary by listening than they can by reading. Um, and they need to understand that, you know, phonemes, you know, are attached to letters. Letters become words. Words become sentences and thoughts. And if kids aren't exposed to vocabulary, they can't build their vocabulary. If they're not exposed to kind of rich read-aloud books and interactive conversations, they can't create that background knowledge they need to comprehend later on. What about in the city of Buffalo schools? What do we know about the current status of, of students in the city of Buffalo? We know, um, unfortunately, um, the conversation tends to start in third grade. Mm -hmm. It starts when the ELA, you know, the New York State ELA exam results come out. 
And prior to the pandemic, we knew that about a third of our kids were reading at grade level by the end of third grade. So that means third. two-thirds weren't. Mm. We knew that. So right there off the bat. Right there off the bat. We know at the age, what's at eight or nine, yep. these uh, folks are going to have some struggles ahead of them. And two years later, post-pandemic, when the results come out, um, I think in August or September, again, so late, the kids have taken these exams in April or May, um, I think the story is going to be really ugly. Mm. Um, and I was talking to a principal of a school yesterday, and she said, you know, the, the district's gearing up. Um, I know that they've changed their kindergarten curriculum to focus more on phonics. Um, kids in the pandemic, so, so we knew there was a problem. There's always been a low-income achievement gap. We know that there's a 30 million word gap between professional households and welfare households. It's been quantified by research. Repeat that, please. Sure. So there's research called the 30 million word gap research. And it was done in the 90s where um, researchers literally quantified. They went in welfare households, and these are their labels, not mine, welfare households, working class households, and professional households. And researchers counted the number of words that children were exposed to. And it kind of goes in the quality of research. I'm not debating the quality of that research. um, But what it found was informative, right? Professional children were exposed to 32 million more words than children in welfare households. And the quality of that language was different. In welfare households, it was much more command language. No, stop, don't, go. Um, And in professional households, it was a lot of really high-quality read-alouds. It was, you know, going to the zoo, going and describing things in the grocery store. Um, So we already knew by that research that there was a gap. Whether it's 32 million words or 20 million words, that's not mine to criticize the research. Mine is to act upon that. And Read to Succeed Buffalo really focuses on working with child care providers in low-income communities, making them literacy-rich, their interactions, and um, modeling for them, coaching them on how to talk to infants while they're changing them on the changing table, how to, you know, interact developmentally appropriately and age appropriately. Um, and then we work with Head Start teachers. Again, how do we make those environments for three- and four-year-olds as literacy-rich as possible? We do a uh, uh, an assessment where that can measure vocabulary among the, our three and four year olds in our Head Start programs, and we know already by the ages of three and four that kids are coming in in their oral language vocabulary about eighteen months delayed. Wow, that's so already that's, right. by the age of three or four. So if we want to kind of increase third grade reading scores, we've got to start at infancy. Okay. All right. So then let's get into read to succeed. Uh, I know there's a lot of focus on science-based learning. Yes. Okay. Let's, we've talked about this a little bit, but why don't we get into it just a little bit. What do we mean when we say science-based learning? So what read to succeed means, and, you know, there's there's all sorts of shiny new, you know, the science of reading and, right. and whatever kind of label you give it, what we mean is we go by the national reading panels science of reading, scientifically based reading research, the big five. So what are the ingredients that kids need to learn how to read? So the National Reading Goals panel really identified, you know, phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, guided reading, that practice, that interactive practice with reading, examples of fluent reading, vocabulary and comprehension, that kids need those ingredients to become literate. Um, They actually... After they did kind of the, the 
the kind of um, those ingredients, they actually went back and said, you know what, we got to take a step back and look at infancy. You know, what are those really pre-literacy skills kids need, like phonemic awareness, um, alphabet knowledge, concepts about print. So again, going back to our Head Start story, we do a concepts of print assessment. So does a child know how to hold a book? Do they know that left-right progression? Do they know the author and the illustrator? And unfortunately, we see a lot of our threes and fours coming in never having held a book. And I was going to jump off. Of, you brought me into it. I was just going to jump off for a second as a bit of an aside. In the digital world, mm-hmm. so much, uh, we actually were talking before we were on the air, I, uh, how I actually went to the library and picked up a book yesterday and took it yeah. home with me. But so much of our reading is done online. Is that Are we seeing any kind of impact on that? You'd think on one side, it's offering opportunities to get more information, more reading material in front of people. But on the other side, there might is there some sort of tactile loss that, that's affecting kids? That's a great question. Um, I think, yes. Um, but I also think the distractions are so much. So in, in our age group, you know, if I wanted to escape some chaos in my household and I talked to so many of my peers my age who, you know, might not have grown up in the best of circumstances, we could go to the library. Right. You know, we only had three channels on our television. We had two, four, and seven, and that was it. And and WNED. Sorry. Pardon me. Don't forget. Um, Yes, don't forget that. Um, Channel 29 when I was a kid. And so we had less distractions. And now today, so I tutor one child, and he, you know, to escape, he goes under his blankets and looks at his phone. And I give him books, and I said, go under your blankets and read your books. Go under your blankets and interact with these words. I don't say that that way, but that's what I'm hoping he'll do. Um, and I think it makes it harder for parents and caregivers to compete with the phone. I know my 26-year-old son is glued to his phone, and that was my mistake in you know, bringing him up. But right. it was all kind of catching up as I was raising him. It's much harder, I think, for kids to escape social media, kids to escape 24-7 news or, or inputs. or you know, And they're learning things that, and being exposed to things that maybe they shouldn't be being exposed to it six, seven, and eight. Um, So yes, kids need to touch, see, and experience language. Um, That's why you see a lot of parenting books, they recommend labeling things in your home, right? Mm. That's what we do with our three and four-year-old classrooms. We label everything. If there's a kitchen center in a child care, we have cookbooks. We have books that identify, you know, if there's a water table, we have science books. Um, Kids need that exposure and they need that conversation from infancy. Again, if you know, the pandemic has just exacerbated this. We have three, four, and fives coming into kindergarten and first grade, having never had any kind of formal environment other than online learning. You can't online learning isn't appropriate for a four year old. It's just not. We're talking with Ann Ryan from uh, Read to Succeed Buffalo this morning on uh, Buffalo What's Next. Uh, and Okay, we, we're identifying the problem, and you're doing a great job of kind of laying out all these different factors and challenges that are there. What are the steps that are trying that your group and other groups are trying to do to counteract that? Again, working with caregivers. Um, there's a wonderful evidence-based pro- program called the Parent-Child Home Program. Um, teaches parent goes into the home, teaches parents literally how to play with their child how to interact with their child, how to read aloud. We have a training in dialogic reading. It's a $10 word for a concept of a read aloud that's very interactive. It's pointing out the pictures, pointing out the words. We know by that uh, a a child's uh, picture book 
has higher level vocabulary than a typical adult conversation. <laughs> so when a child wow. is experiencing those read aloud books with a caregiver, not only is it bonding, it's um, mentoring, it's creating that relationship, but it's also exposing them to higher level vocabulary than they typically would be. Um, so I think it, it, the solution is really, really simple and really difficult. It's having adults change their behavior. If you didn't grow up in a household with books, you didn't go up, grow up in a household with a lot of interactive conversations, a lot of experiencing just, and I'm not saying go to the Louvre, I'm saying right. go to the park, right. go to the grocery store. That's, you know, it, interactive, it, rich conversations and descriptive conversations. You don't know how to do that. It's a learned skill. So to break these cycles, we need to mentor, we need to teach, we need to coach. So everything Read to Succeed Buffalo does is based in an evidence-based coaching model. Okay. It's adult learning theory and how adults change their behavior. And they change their behavior through modeling, through best practices, through using data, and everything we do is data. If the data is not going the way we want it to, we've got to change our practice. So we'll do an observation, look at what's going on, and change practice. We're always pivoting, always making things, um, you know, looking at the science and using that science to understand exactly what our children need. So when it comes to coaching, um, are we looking at getting volunteer coaches or are we talking about dealing with teachers in the classroom already? Both. Okay. So we have professional coaches. We have early literacy intervention specialists who work with our child care providers and our preschool children. We have experienced core literacy coaches who can work with teachers, and they work with volunteers. So AARP Foundation Experience Core is an evidence-based practice. We partner with the National AARP Foundation. And you might be like, why does an early learning organization right. partner <laughs> right, with AARP? Right, right, right. Well, we recruit seniors over the age of 50, mostly retirees, and we train them to become literacy tutors in Buffalo Public Schools. So if anyone is listening and they want to become uh, you know, part of the solution, we'll train you to be a literacy tutor. We ask for about four hours a week. And we know with the strategic kids that we're working with, those kids who are below grade level, that about 92% of them increased in their oral reading accuracy. So the, what they were reading, they were reading correctly. Wow. Very proud of that. We didn't, we made, um, not, we made huge improvements. I think it was about 70% of those kids were reading with the fluency they needed. But we need to build that stamina. Again, these kids didn't have a lot. They need more exposure. They need more experience. Back to your point of the kids need books. Right. They absolutely need books. They need to build their stamina for reading more quickly. But the kids that we're working with are reading much more accurately. So if somebody wanted to be a coach, and we're going to repeat this question at the end of our conversation, um, what should they do to find out? Because I, I all of a sudden I just have that sense among our listening audience, people have been very much in tune to the subject matter we've yes. done here on Buffalo What's Next, that there are people who want to make a difference. This is a way to make a difference. Yep. How can and, they do it? And it's one-on-one -on -one literacy tutoring, which is amazing. These kids get a half, get an hour a week of just your undivided attention. And I have to do a shout-out because I know our tutors listen to this program <laughs> okay. um, because our tutors are the most fabulous people in the world. Um, 
there uh, we have 50 tutors right now we're recruiting another we have about another 60 new tutors who are going to come into training in September so we'll deploy about 100 110 tutors in the fall so we're super excited about that um, are all the so, tutors going to be in the Buffalo School or, or yes, around the area? Yes, Buffalo yes. Schools, okay. uh, We're focused on the city. It doesn't mean that, you know, if a, if a Lackawanna comes in and, and wants to partner with us and fund up some tutors, we're sure. absolutely happy to. Right. Because, um, again, the need, you know, and, and that's not to say Williamsville couldn't benefit from it right. either. Because these strategic kids, I call them kind of the, the falling through the crack kids. So they're not kids who are low enough to be in special ed or get extra services. And they're not high enough to just – there's a certain percentage of kids who are just going to read no matter what. They just – you know, it goes through our conversation earlier. Some people just uh, – you know, they're they're going to do it regardless. Um, but there's a mid – you know, those middle-of-the-road kids who are just – you know, below grade level who just fall through the cracks. We're talking with Ann Ryan of Read to Succeed Buffalo. Uh, coming down to our final couple of minutes here on uh, Buffalo, what's next? So the kids that, uh, that you're – uh, coaching. I was going to say tutoring, but coaching. You're coaching. Uh, how old are they? Again, so we work with infants, toddlers, and, and preschoolers in our child care programming. We work with three and four-year-olds in our Head Start programming. And the last few years, we've been working with only first, second, and third graders in the Buffalo schools. Again, we were one of the few partners in Buffalo schools who stayed with them during the 2021 100% remote. We trained 50 tutors on MS Teams and a coach and a literacy tutoring model, again, that structured session, to do over MS Teams. Wow. And we had 47 tutors stick with it. It was really hard. Um, my staff is just beginning to be- forgive me for having to learn all this new stuff. Um, but they were amazing. And we had a 72% attendance rate among our students. And we did about uh, over 3,300 tutoring hours remotely. Most of our tutors are... are our professionals. Um, again, one of our, our goals in a meeting with the Baptist Ministers Association is to recruit folks from the neighborhoods our schools are in. Really trying to get those that neighborhood presence in the schools. Um, and again, they become a part of the fabric of the school. After the tragedies of May 14th, the schools called us and said, you know, even though they closed, you know, they didn't want folks coming in. They were trying to really be very, very, very careful. And should and yes, they should have right. been. But they called us and said that doesn't the tutors still come. The student we still want the tutors to come. The kids and to a one when the schools opened, that next day, every single one of our tutors showed up who was scheduled to show up. And that's what it means to become a part of the fabric of the school. That's what it means to become a mentor for a child. That's what it means to become a tutor, a literacy tutor for a child. And we do measure social-emotional growth. We know that these kids are more confident. We know that these kids are working harder. They have better attention and time on task. And uh, it seems as if it's going to be obvious, but it sounds like the coaches draw a nice personal connection from themselves. They find they get very drawn into their students. We had a, a, a lovely tutor, Pat, who I, I told her I use her quote all the time, and I'll use it again. But during the 2021 school year, she um, – and we do serve – so the na- it's a part of a national AARP foundation. There's 22 other experience courses, experience core programs around the country. Read to Succeed Buffalo is the partner agency. And Pat, on one of the surveys that the national does, we get the results, and the, the, the comment was, you know – and again, I don't have it written down, so I won't get it quite right. But basically, she, she was a retired teacher. She knows the importance of literacy. She knows the importance of her role. 
and being online with her three students twice a week, every week, helped her isolation. She was isolated during COVID, and it helped her continue her social connectedness. Mm. So we measure that for our seniors, too. Sure. I mean, we measure academic and social outcomes for our kids, but we measure acad- uh, pardon me, social outcomes for our, our, our tutors. We want to know, you know, did you learn a new skill? Do we want to know, are, do you feel more connected? Are you more civically engaged? Um, and the AARP does national research where it actually, and, and this is important to me because my mom, unfortunately, suffered and died from Alzheimer's, but there's actually research that shows that when seniors have more active engagement, are learning new skills, it helps them cognitively. It helps them cognitively. It deters their brain, um, whatever Alzheimer's does to your brain. Right. Um, So I, 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 Take that to heart and, and <laughs> hope as that's we true. All yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But it's again, it's almost it's research based, but it's also kind of common sense yes. if you think about it, right? Yeah. So much of this research base is kind of common sense. Right, but it's nice to finally get some some backup to this. And exactly. Then, and then uh, finally, you got to crawl before you walk, and you got to walk before you run. But how big could this program go? I mean, are there other examples across the country where? Oh sure. Where it's it's grown to. Hundreds of coaches? Absolutely. Hundreds of volunteers. Absolutely. Um, as I said, in the fall, we're hoping to have about 100 volunteers deployed. Which would be great. Which would be But there are great. a lot more kids that need help. But there's a lot more kids that need help. Um, so I, I, um, I, I don't have it off the top of my head, but I know, I think Boston has 500 volunteers out in the field. Um, I could get the exact That's number. Fine. That's but fine. But Boston has a very large program, and they've been around a lot longer than we have. But and they're out of um, a senior organization. So that's one of the things Read to Succeed Bravo kind of brought to the AARP Foundation is the pedagogy of, of early learning. Um, and so Experience Corps has really improved, um, and I, I like to think Read to Succeed at Buffalo had a role in really making them much more science-based um, and much more um, structured in their structured session. And the reason why we focus on that discrete kind of fluency comprehension vocabulary and not try to be all things to all people is because we want to measure our improvement. And that's what I started to say earlier is we share that data. We treat our volunteers like practitioners and share that data with them so they can see their impact on their students' growth. And it's been incredible. And Ryan, Finally, your, your pitch on volunteering, how, how can somebody do it? Sure. They can go to our website, readtosucceedbuffalo.org. Um, they can even go to the AARP F- Foundation website and look at the job description um, and just or give our office a call, 716-843-8895. And Ryan of Read to Succeed Buffalo, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. And I love this program. Thank you for doing it. And this program is Buffalo, What's Next? You can listen to WBFO anywhere in the world with your mobile device by downloading our apps at iTunes or the Google Play Store. Get all the trusted local news you need right to your inbox each weekday morning with the WBFO daily email. Visit WBFO.org to sign up today. Support for this audio service is provided by Freed Maxic online at freedmaxic.com. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. 
Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Welcome back to Buffalo, What's Next? And we're continuing our focus on education with one of the presenters at the recent Teaching Black History Conference sponsored by the University of Buffalo. Dozens of educators offered their ideas on the topic, and through a series of happy circumstances, we had a chance to hear from Vicki Math. She kept a room full of elementary and high school teachers captivated throughout her talk, and we tried to record for you to hear But our room at the City Honors proved to be a difficult setting. Her presentation, Incorporating African-Inspired Art, Music, and Literature into Social Studies Curriculum, is well worth hearing. So she offered to talk to us about it recently by phone from Detroit. Uh, Vicki, thanks very much for your time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I was able to take in a lot of different information regarding teaching black history at the recent conference. But just to start things off, a general question from your perspective as an educator, what what is lacking in the teaching of black history? The incorporating of black people and how we learn from each other. One example is you can't teach about rock and roll without talking about the African-inspired music or the African-American inspired music and then the white boys wanting to learn how to play this music and then us coming together. But if you leave that out, you just don't have a full picture. Why would white kids want to jump into the civil rights movement and get their head beat in? And we're segregated for the most part. So how do white kids even know what's going on in black lives? Because of the music. So you leave all of that out and you don't have a full picture. Who would benefit from improvements in the teaching of black history? Would it be more black students, white students, or everybody? Everybody. My white kids enjoy it just as much because, you know, white kids, a lot of them like black music. So when they come into that class, they learn the history, the background, the culture, and they love it because it's like a new world and they fit right into it. So it's more inclusive, and white kids love it just as much as any other group. It's interesting that you mentioned music because during your presentation, you did get into a lot of uh, of the elements of the black diaspora that were influenced or really extend from West Africa from centuries ago, and right near the top of that list, songs, right? Correct. In African culture, everything is functional. So in Africa, when we had funerals or weddings or celebrating a new home, music and song and dance would be a part of that. And now if you go into an African-American church, you see the exact same thing. The preacher's going to preach, but we need music, we need song, we need all parts of our bodies to go along with that. And that comes from Africa. When you're doing your presentation, you're able to get a lot of laughs out of of the audience uh, because... You went through some of the other elements of the black diaspora that come from West Africa. Let's talk a a little bit about those, things like call and response and nonverbal communication. Well, that's really interesting because if you are in an African-American church or you go to a black concert, the audience is supposed to be a part of the presentation and the performance. And it's very different when you go to see Western European performances because the audience is quiet. 
and then they clap at the end. So those are cultural differences. So you are supposed to participate. So when I teach, I, I do the same thing. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to wait till I'm finished. <laughs> Say it. You know, throw it out there. So that's a little bit different. Another one is uh, call and response. If I'm a performer, I need to know you're with me. I need to know that you're part of what I'm about to do. I need to know you're ready. I need to know that our energy is connecting. So that's what call and response is. And again, it comes from West Africa. When it comes to West Africa, why was the history lost? Why was it allowed to perhaps go to the wayside and not be brought forward over these centuries? Well, it's a couple reasons. One is because for most of our history in West Africa, we didn't have a written language. And so we transferred knowledge verbally. And if you cut that off, that's when things are lost. Now, we do have some reference because we did incorporate the written language with the spread of Islam, but you do cut that off if we can't tell the kids or tell the grandbabies. The other is because it was political. You can't make a group of people inhuman if they have a culture and a history. So you just cut all that off. And what's interesting about your work is you focus, though, on those things that we do know about West Africa, because like you said, there was no written language, and then that handing it down orally was cut off throughout the years. But you looked at artworks and things along those lines that tell us a lot about what happened in West Africa and what type of civilization people came from. Oh, yes. Art is wonderful, especially when you look at just most art museums in the United States have the same evidence of the history and culture of not just West Africa, but globally. And it's something you really can't fabricate. Um, We want art to stay as pure as possible. And so the artwork tells you so much. For example, one of my favorite pieces in the Detroit Institute of Art is a piece called The Adoration of the Magi. It was done in 1525. It's a scene of the three wise men, and you see that West African there in all his gold and glory. So then you can say, wait a minute now. If this was done in 1525 and clearly this African is equal, how then you in 1800 say that African, African Americans are less than human and are not equal? So you point to the art. Obviously, you can't go to every art museum, but like you said, there it does seem that most have some sort of African art or, or a large amount of African art. But at the same time, would you say that the interpretation that you're giving here, the idea that this shows us that there was a civilization, you know, a vibrant civilization from which a lot of enslaved people came from, uh, is that message being moved forward, do you think, uh, by art museums? Well, that's a problem because we do have online information. We have online lesson plans for educators, but we do have to do a better job at connecting that. We have resources online, but, you know, teachers, I I can't speak for all of them. I'm just wondering how often are they accessing those materials? Um, You know, with budget cuts, it's hard to take classes to art museums. So I do think there is a bit of a disconnect, which is why I think it's important for me to get a curriculum out there that incorporates it into just your traditional high school social studies curriculum, because I want to do I want to bridge that gap. And that brings me to a key question here. Then when it comes to teaching black history, is the issue what is taught or how it's taught? 
it's both. It's both. Because if you don't know the history, how can you teach it? And most, I'm just going to argue that most colleges of education are not teaching teachers how to incorporate that into lesson plans. We are talking with uh, Vicki Math, uh, Vicki from Detroit, but was here in Buffalo for the fifth annual Teaching Black History Conference. Her presentation was called Incorporating African-Inspired Art, Music, and Literature into Social Studies Curriculum. One thing that you stressed to the teachers that were in this conference was to ask students, where are your people from? I, I thought that was right. interesting. And, and because when it comes to most blacks who are living in northern, the northern United States, they probably migrated from the south. Most likely, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, for the most part, we know where we came from. You know, we know at Mississippi, Georgia, we had, still have family reunions to connect us to those southern roots. But for the most part, we do know where we came from. How about you? Arkansas. Arkansas. Arkansas, yep. What can you tell us about your Arkansas roots? Well, my great-grandfather was very high yellow, and he could pass for white, hmm. but he chose not to. He messed around with a lot of white women, so eventually he was run out of the South. You know, he got a kick out of it. And when he came north, he, like most folks, we would have the first person come and then send for others. So not only do we know where we came from, we usually know the first person that came to the north. We know who they are. If we really dig, we sometimes we know who came second, who came third, where did they relocate to, and also which car factory did they work for. A lot of people know that they came and they worked for Chrysler or they came and worked for Ford. What about the Harlem Renaissance? You did talk about that as well during your presentation uh, fairly extensively. The Harlem Renaissance, I think, is a wonderful opportunity to show how we're all connected. And the father of the Harlem Renaissance, his name is Eileen Locke. And he studied in, he was a Rhodes Scholar, so he studied in England, and for a while he was in Berlin, but he learned a lot about the Irish literature renaissance. And by learning about the Irish literature renaissance, he said, I can apply this to African Americans. So it's just so interesting to see how we're so connected. And then the Irish looked at the African American civil rights movement for strategies on how to deal with what they were dealing with, the British. So we're just so connected. We learn from each other, and it's just fascinating when you show that. And again, the, the Harlem Renaissance, uh, it's interesting to, to talk about it, the, the luminaries who, have emer- who emerged or originated from the Harlem Renaissance. Again, though, is it a story that is making its way into the classroom enough? No. The way it's taught is mostly a focus on art, but the way I teach it and what I think is important is to show that it was an intellectual movement because you want everybody, black kids, need to know this themselves, that we come from a very high intellectual tradition. So I always want to show them that the foundation, it was an intellectual movement of the Negro intelligentsia because that's what I want to train black kids to become. So it's, it, that's the first thing, that it was a literary movement and an intellectual movement. It wasn't just art. And we saw parallel movements throughout the African diaspora. In the French-speaking colonies, it was something called negritude. 
but it, it was very similar. Uh, another remark that you made that got uh, a good response from your audience was also how right now, you know, you've t- you started talking a little bit about white allies and you said maybe the, the group that you have the biggest problem with right now, white liberal progressives. Absolutely. Right now, I think that people are not looking deeply enough at these two sides. And sometimes as an African-American, I feel like a pawn. I don't like the fact that it's being presented that the right is bad and the left is good. That's a problem for me because you're not telling me, do you understand what the right wants? Do you understand what's problematic to them about democratic policies and issues? I'm not hearing enough about what's going on in terms of the left understanding the right. Don't just make, try to make me think they bad because that's not true. I also don't like the fact that these liberal progressives, of course, I'm not talking about all of them, speak for us too much. And they don't allow us to speak for ourselves. One example would be when I teach a class, I would not spend a lot of time on setting norms or how do you feel? I'm just not going to do a lot of that. Because in African-American culture, we cut into the chase, let's get down to business. That's a little fluffy. And I'm speaking for myself. But that's something right now the left is into. But they're into it. And I don't like them trying to train me to follow along with what they do. Because I have to be more in tune with how I do it my way culturally. One example I can give you in a classroom is we tend to be tougher and stricter. So I run a strict classroom. I think sometimes liberals and progressives, I'm just saying how I feel, dumb down curriculum when they're talking about African-American kids. There's something there where they, they're nice and they're sweet and it's easy. And it's just the opposite for me. I'm going to kill them kids. I'm going to work them hard. Sit down. Don't talk when I'm talking. And, Vicki, I can tell you that when I was in your classroom, I did not speak out. Just wanted to uh, point that out as well. (laughs) (laughs) Vicki Math, uh, thanks very much for joining us today. All right. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. That was Vicki Math, recently in Buffalo for the Teaching Black History Conference, sponsored by the University of Buffalo. Her presentation, Incorporating African-Inspired Art, Music, and Literature into Social Studies Curriculum. It's been a full hour focused on education today on Buffalo What's Next. Our first guest was Eva Doyle, former Buffalo school teacher, Buffalo historian, and longtime columnist in the city of Buffalo. And we also heard from Ann Ryan from Read Succeed Buffalo. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm member-supported WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL and Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.